Well, hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. What do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to be talking about a major U.S. pipeline getting hacked, the renewed conflict between Israel and Palestine, and a nice conclusion to Nepal's political crisis. All that and more, coming up. Alrighty, 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 let's get into the rapid-fire news. So, we have diplomats from the signatories of the USMCA, the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement, uh, they are set to meet this week for the first Free Trade Commission meeting. So that's basically to discuss how the trade arrangements are going and to make any necessary adjustments, uh, basically making the arrangement a flexible one rather than static and set in stone. So they'll be meeting this week. Um, Probably, if I had to guess, They'll be going to talk about the effects that the lockdowns have had on um, in regards to the goods that they would be trading with each other and maybe potential changes in price that that have caused. Uh, so that'll probably be a, something that gets brought up. But we'll ultimately have to wait and see on how what they do. What they do and if it's pretty big at all. Because it could just be that everything's fine and they go on about their business. And then we don't have anything to talk about. But that's the best case scenario. Although, again, I'd imagine the supply shocks is probably going to cause some shifting to this agreement. At least temporarily. Meanwhile, uh, the Taliban and Afghan government have met in Qatar to resume peace talks. Now, there's been a whole lot of major diplomatic moves been going on in the Middle East And, as we've increasingly noted, it is under the tutelage of regional powers. These regional problems are being, they're having peace deals, and they're having arrangements, and they're having talks with regional powers. Regional problems being solved by regional powers. Qatar is acting as, well, a broker of peace deals. They're a relatively neutral country, and they're fully exploiting that, because uh, if I'm not mistaken, it was Qatar who brokered effectively the detente and the de-escalation between Iran and South Korea when Iran seized an oil tanker that South Korea had en route back to South Korea itself, uh, to which the South Koreans responded by sending a destroyer en route to the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, I was about to say the Gulf of Mexico, to the, the Persian Gulf. And it was Qatar who de-escalated that situation, which could have gone very, very badly had that destroyer actually made it to the Gulf. So we're seeing Qatar really step up as the middleman of the region's nations. And... I guess this is no exception, but rather just another step towards their uh, potentially rather important role in the future if they keep this up, which is pretty good to have considering the small nature, well, the small nature, the small size of the country uh, in both, you know, physical and population terms. Uh, They're not exactly the biggest kid on the block, but doing this makes them important. It's kind of like how Switzerland is neutral in Europe. Uh, uh, major, major moves being made by Qatar. Qatar. I can't, uh, can I can't figure out whether or not I want to call it Qatar or Qatar. So I just keep alternating off between them. But uh, yeah, we they brokered. Well, they're brokering talks between the Taliban and the Afghan government. And it is my belief the Taliban will win that war, and we'll be talking about Afghan Taliban. Not the war, just Afghanistan governed by the Taliban in the future. So, 
Either way, Qatar is putting itself in good throws for the future. We've also been seeing things like Saudi Arabia reach out to Iran, of all countries, to restore diplomatic relations. And we talked last episode about how they were doing the same with Syria. And it's kind of... Uh, it's kind of like as the Syrian civil war is coming to a close and a lot of the other wars, namely the U.S. interventions, are coming to their conclusions, the region seems to be very rapidly stepping in to a new balance. And for no reason, uh, uh, it didn't happen for no reason. It's happening because... The regional players are doing their utmost to fill in the gaps that they see. And because everyone's doing that, you're, we're finding that the power vacuum is disappearing uh, a lot faster than a lot of people thought it could. Uh, Iran has a massive sphere of influence stretching from the Zagros Mountains, which is basically the entire mountain chain that all of Iran is sit- situated on. Um uh westward towards the levant with lebanon being the farthest west of its sphere of influence and the houthis in yemen to their south being in their sphere of influence and we see saudi arabia pulling out of yemen gradually at the same time that they're trying to establish meaningful relations or at the very least a working relationship with syria so we see this new balance of power is starting to emerge in the Middle East, and again, it is centered around the regional players. And I, I gotta add, it seems like Iran is gonna be the biggest winner in the Middle East, because they have played their cards to the best of their ability, and due to events that have unfolded, they have ended up backing the winning side in a lot of these conflicts, they backed Iraq. Well, they're backing Iraq right now. So they've turned a former enemy into an ally. Iran and Iraq fought a war back uh, when Iraq was under Saddam Hussein. So now you have an enemy turned into an ally that's on your border. That's basically makes your border secure. That's great for Iran. You've turned an enemy into an ally. You've cozied up to Syria... Uh, the Syrian government under Assad. So, and with Assad winning the war, the civil war, and this conclusion that is in sight now for the Syrian civil war, you have Iran having backed the winning side in that conflict, solidifying uh, good relations with the government of Syria. Again, Assad for now. Because eventually he'll he'll keel over and someone else will replace him. But I don't imagine they're going to forget that favor that the Iranians gave to Syria, the Syrian government. So you have Iraq, you back them up after the U.S. invasion. You have Syria, you back them up after multiple attempts from multiple countries to back rebel factions in Syria... But the Syrian government won, and which means Iran's horse in that race has won. Iran expends its influence there. And then you've basically created a corridor where Iran is then able to interact with the fringes of its sphere of influence, which were previously disconnected. And that is elements of Hezbollah uh, in Lebanon and... In Palestine. Well, Hezbollah. Yeah, yeah, Hezbollah. Okay. Uh, making sure I wasn't getting them confused with Hamas. But these rebel, these fighters, and Hezbollah being a, a political organization. Um, so they're kind of eh. And by eh, I mean they're here and there. They're, they're in a rough neighborhood, so we can't expect them to be. Uh, suits wearing uh, we can't expect them to be in the suit all the time sometimes they have to get down and dirty but you have Iran reaching out 
now having a corridor to reach out to these people who were associated with Iran previously. So now Iran has a direct access to them who are aligned with Iran more than anyone else in the region, you know, aside from themselves. But So we could potentially see a winning side in the Lebanese civil war that ends up also being pro-Iran, uh, and that's my bet. And then to the south, you have Yemen, where Iran has backed the Houthis, and the Houthis have routed the Arabians. The Arabians tried to intervene and uh, put them down. The Houthis beat them back. Or, they well, they made it to a costly to, for the Arabians to continue. So now the Arabians are going home. And, again, you have Iran being having backed the winning side in this conflict. And so for this very relatively small cost of men and materiel and blood and treasure, Iran is going to walk away um, probably by the end of the decade when a lot of these conflicts really start to simmer down and we get to see what the new balance of power is going to be in the Middle East. Iran has situated itself through these investments uh, to be the premier power in the Middle East. And that's kind of a very weird thing to think about because we w previously wouldn't have thought that that would be the case. But they've really done a good job of putting their weight behind the winning side in a lot of these conflicts. To the point now where they again have Iraq and Syria giving them a corridor to the sea that gives them a corridor to the Mediterranean, but also gives them access to Lebanon and parts of Palestine in Israel, which is great for the Iranians and terrible for the Israelis. Then they have a southern anchor in Yemen. That is a pretty massive sphere of influence. Um, not quite a new Persian empire, but in today's terms, this is huge. This is huge. We talked about how Syria has basically become an ally to Iran. And now, when we take a step back and look at the bigger picture, it seems like Arabia has been isolated and forced into this corner where they have to side with Israel because Qatar is independent and is charting its own path as the deal maker of the region. And Iran has superb relations with all the people who they backed. And now Arabia is going to have terrible relations with Yemen. They're going to have terrible relations with Syria because they backed the losing side in those conflicts. Now, was it calculated when they got involved? Probably. But the cookie has crumbled and Arabia is on the losing side, you you probably heard me almost say Iran again, but the Arabia, Arabia. So we have what is looking like a diplomatic isolation of the major powers in the Middle East. Uh, you have the isolation of Israel and the isolation of Arabia. Because at this point, the only country that Iran would really need to seek to improve relations with would be Egypt and Turkey. Egypt and Turkey. Those are the two, and I don't see... I don't see necessarily either of those two stepping in specifically to halt anything Iranian as much as they would be neutral towards the developments because you'd have a balance of power that keeps Iran and the Arabian coalitions at each other's throat while leaving... Turkey and Egypt alone, because they have the distance, really. Uh, Turkey, not so much, because they're, like, right there, but eh, they have Iran's sphere of influence as a wall. Uh, it prevents them from getting too much done in the Middle East themselves, but it also prevents the Middle East from getting to them. So, for the time being, I'd imagine they'll take advantage of that. 
And as far as Egypt goes, they also have a wall. They have the Israeli-Arabian wall preventing the Iranian sphere of influence from getting to them. So, I see those two countries being neutral in all this uh, until something changes. But I think we're starting to get a glimpse at what the new balance of power in the Middle East is going to be. And uh, as a side note, we should mention that the Russians are also going to make off like bandits, relatively speaking, because they have also put their weight behind the winner in the Syrian civil war, Assad. So that that's going to give them a decent hand to play in the Middle East, should they choose to do so. And they have the caucuses on lockdown, so I'm pretty sure they're content with the results. Especially, again, due to the minimal investment that these countries have put down. I have created a whole unintentional segment about Middle Eastern politics in the Rapid Fire News segment, so we'll just continue. But they're free content, free content. Didn't intend to do it, but it's there. So, yeah. I did mention, however, that there was a pretty nice resolution to the Nepali... Uh, the Goodness, I'm blinking. The Nepali political crisis. And that is that KP... Sharma Ali has won the prime ministership again after a new round of elections, which he called for after the dissolution of parliament uh, back in, what was it, November or December of last year. Uh, We had this major political crisis where he dissolved the parliament. The president was on his side. It's a prime ministership, so there's a prime minister and a president. Uh, It's a parliamentary system. I I know enough about it to understand that there's two, but really there's one, and that's the prime minister. But the president backed him. Uh, He dissolved the the parliament. I almost said Congress. Uh, The parliament refused to be dissolved. It went to the courts. The courts backed the parliament. So you had this split between what was effectively the executive branch, uh, the prime minister and the president, versus the legislative and judicial, which was uh, the parliament and the courts but when for a while there was a really tense situation there and there was a potential for foreign interference via on the part of india and china who i believed were at the very least paying very close attention to that situation it's a country literally on both their borders it's a buffer state between them um and this was at a time when they were really skirmishing with one another on the line of actual control in the Himalayas. So, I believed that if anything went wrong in Nepal, it would very quickly get absorbed by the grander border uh, dispute between India and China. But, it appears Nepal has dodged a very, very bad silver bullet. Because they survived intact to the elections the elections have been held and now KP Sharma Ali has won the prime ministership again putting a a nice uh, do I want to say nice or dirty I don't know if I want to say dirty because he'd won the election but I don't know if I want to say it's nice because I'm sure there are plenty of people who are still upset but it's a nice conclusion. It's better than breaking down into conflict. So yeah, a nice little bow tie to wrap up this story that we've been covering for the past few months. And you know what? I'm happy we covered it. We, I told you the world was changing. And here is just one of those changes. Peace in Nepal. Well, there was always peace in Nepal. But, uh, peace of mind in Nepal. There we go. But yeah. Meanwhile... Uh, the Himalayas. Wait, oh, I just read my notes wrong. No. <laughs> I don't know where my head is at today. But we're just gonna, we're just gonna pretend that didn't happen. So anyway, Africa and the Africa-France summit, uh, has been postponed over the virus fears. We've talked a bit over the past couple episodes of French involvement in Africa. So I guess we'll just gloss over that. Until something major pops up. Meanwhile, the militaries of Uganda and Congo, that's the Democratic Republic of Congo, 
are teaming up to establish an operating base in the eastern regions of Congo to fight against Islamist militias in the area. Uh, for those who don't know the geography, that is jungle. That is hard jungle rainforest. The absolute worst type of terrain to be trying to fight people in is exactly where they're going to go try to fight people in. So, we'll we'll see how that plays out. I don't know. I don't know if I'd like to be these people. I'd certainly hate to be the one tasked to go fight Islamist militants in a damn rainforest. But I, I guess the only thing worse than that would be being Islamist militants in a rainforest being surrounded by government troops. So, pick your poison. Uh, in other news, the U.S. eviction protections uh, will come to a close after May. I anticipate that the pr- Joe Biden, the current president of the United States, will probably do something about that with an executive order. If he doesn't, it'll shock me. But I figure at some point this will come to an end. Some point being the key term, because I really don't know. So, we'll have to see where that goes and the impact it'll have. Uh, And by impact, I mean undoubtedly negative. Very, very negative. Or maybe it'll be positive because people saved their money. But, you know, just... Who knows? (laughs) I'd imagine the unemployment is going to pay for it. The unemployment checks will pay for it, maybe. Who knows? We'll really just have to see how that goes. There was was a whole debacle over jobs numbers with a whole bunch of job openings, but not people choosing to take them. So we'll see how that plays out. We'll see how that plays out. Uh, And I guess while we're technically still talking about the U.S., Pakistan has refused to host U.S. troops uh, in the aftermath of the withdrawal from Afghanistan. So, basically, once the withdrawal from Afghanistan is complete, uh, the U.S. is going to get ejected wholesale from Pakistan as well. To which I say, excellent. Yes. We need more countries to do this. We need more countries to say, you know what? When you're done with Afghanistan, we need you out. Yes. It's... The war is over. It's time for you to go on home. Could you imagine how great that would be if if we could go home? <laughs> if we could go home. Oh, boy. But, yeah, nice to see Pakistan uh, exerting its executive authority over its own uh, sovereignty. I have full respect to it. Yes, yes. Definitely no personal agendas behind that. No. Ooh. What? Who said isolationism? But another exciting thing that I've uh, come across gathering the news for today's episode is Canal Istanbul has been approved and is now in the early funding phase of construction. And this is going to be huge, really. Effectively, you're talking about a second Bosphorus Strait being dug out kind of through the outskirts of the city of Istanbul itself. Istanbul, formerly known as Constantinople, but we have effectively a massive trench that's going to be dug through the outskirts of the city that will link the Black Sea with the Sea of Marmara, which is the small body of water between the city of Istanbul, where Asia meets Europe, and the wider, what is it, the Ionian Sea? Ah, goodness, let me... Yeah, there's... Okay, basically, there's already the canal, not the canal, the Straits of the Bosphorus, but what they're talking about now is digging this canal, which will give them, specifically, them the ability to move freely from the black sea through the sea of Mar- to the sea of marmara uh without any of the restrictions that they have via treaties on the straits of the bosphorus right now uh 
which means they can move warships at, at will rather than having to negotiate it with other people or even tell other people that it's going to be happening, which is great from an independent strategy point of view. Um, not so great if someone from the outside can take advantage of that more than you. But I'd imagine uh, nobody is going to be able to do that for the time being, namely because Russia isn't exactly focused on its navy right now. It's focused on the army, and it's done an excellent job of fine-tuning that thing. Their army and the air force is what the Russians are focused on. So, again, for the time being, this will uh, disproportionately impact to the benefit of Turkey. This will disproportionately impact Turkey to its benefit. Now, let's see if I can't... The, the Aegean Sea. Okay, okay. There we go. I could have sworn that the body of water between Greece and uh, Turkey was... I, I blanked on its name, but I was correct in my first thought that I didn't say. It is the Aegean Sea. Okay, so from the Aegean Sea... You go from there to the little pond, by comparison, that is the Sea of Marmora. That's between uh, the Aegean Sea and the Black Sea. There's a little body of water there. That's the Sea of Marmora. So, a little bit of geography in our geopolitics episode. Always appreciated. But, uh, yeah, they're going to build this new canal. They're going to, when it's finished, because it's already been approved now... They're going to be able to move freely from the two seas. And again, for the time being, it'll disproportionately benefit them and not someone else. Because no one else, aside from what America, has a navy that would be a meaningful threat that would need to go through the, the new canal. Or even the Bosphorus, for that matter. But, yes, very interesting and we'll keep our eyes on it. Mainly, at this point, we'll keep our eyes on the backlash towards its construction from other countries and the things that they say. And we'll move from there. But now, we get to get into the meat. And we'll get there in just a moment. Alright, and we are back to get into the meat. So, we're going to start this segment off by talking about the colonial pipeline hack in the United States of America. Ooh, so, what happened? A major, major pipeline in the U.S. was hacked a week ago. I'm trying to get the proper frame of reference because I covered these things after they happened. Um, so... I like at the beginning of another week, so I feel weird trying to reference them on, you know, a week ago or a day ago type basis. So that's just a minor thing for me. But anyway, a couple days ago, a major, major U.S. pipeline was hacked, causing massive shortages in fuel in the southeastern United States. And there were lines, really, really long lines at gas stations. There were a whole bunch of people attempting to stock up on fuel in case there, in case this was a long-term thing. So in that sense, they're smart. But in the other sense, they've exacerbated the problem by trying to stock up everybody at once. Uh, and every, effectively, you had a bank run, except instead of the bank, it was the gas station. You had a gas run. And so there was... Not enough gas, not even close to enough gas to go around, and you had massive shortages. Uh, North Carolina being hit particularly hard with these shortages. Uh, there was numbers that put uh, around 70% and up of the state's gas stations running out of gas. That is huge. I... If I was in there uh, and driving a car, I'd be uh, pissed. <laughs> I would be, <laughs> I'd be upset. 
if that if I was in that situation and I had to drive like a what thirty minutes to an hour to work, oh sweet Jesus, no, <laughs> just no. That's we don't have the public transportation for this. We are a nation of car drivers. And this is terrible. This is like this is like kryptonite for us. A gas shortage. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that was. Pretty bad for North Carolina. Um, now, as far as the pipeline itself, it originates from Houston, Texas, and ends in New York. In all, it goes through a total of 14 states plus the District of Columbia, the District of Columbia. So, five, 15 territories in total. Uh, now, the pipeline was hit with a ransomware. The ransom demanded by the hacker group known as Darkside. Yeah, yeah, that, that that's their name. Yeah, Darkside. Uh the ransom they demanded was 75 Bitcoin. Uh which as of right now is roughly equivalent to five million dollars. So cripple a country's infrastructure and demand five million in exchange. That sounds like a fair deal, now doesn't it? That sounds like a very fair deal. I don't know. If I was playing Civ and I did something like this, I would have demanded their entire economy. <laughs> but uh, I, guess, I guess they had more rational, quote-unquote rational demands. I don't know what to make of this ransom, okay? I, I really don't. I mean, you do this in exchange for $5 million, you're, you're going to get some very unpleasant people sent to your door. You're going to get some FBI, CIA, NSA agents, plus people from the Department of Homeland Security just showing up at your door one day. Like, hey, can we get little Jimmy? We, we just, we just want to talk to little Jimmy. What did he do wrong? Oh, don't don't you worry about that, man. We're just gonna we're just gonna have a chat with Timmy. Yeah, where's Jimmy? You mean Timmy? Yeah. Or is he? But um, uh, so they're probably not gonna have a happy ending when all is said and done. But that's the ransom, and the ransom was paid by Colonial. Colonial being the name of the company that owns and built the pipeline. And since paying that ransom, which they were largely advised against doing, because there's never a guarantee that once you give people the money, that they'll actually follow through on these things. So it was really uh, lucky that they, Darkseid did follow through on this for their five mil, five, their $5 million dollars. Or, well, there's 75 Bitcoin, and which kind of raised an interesting thing in and of itself, and I'll get into that in a minute. But they paid the ransom, uh, which has opened the door probably to more hacks, potential hacks in the future, because when you give a mouse a cookie, he'll want your house. But the, the whole ordeal... Uh, the whole ordeal has raised issues over ever-increasing fears of inflation, uh, the poor and vulnerable state of our, our infrastructure, our being American infrastructure, and the future of U.S. energy. Now, luckily, the, they've gotten control of the pipeline systems back, and they've had, they have gas flowing now, so the problem has been largely alleviated probably by the time I'm recording this. But it was pretty big, so I'm talking about it. But uh, the Pandora's box that has been opened by this situation uh, can't be closed. Again, we have issues that have been raised over ever-increasing fears of inflation, which are caused by ever-increasing inflation, ever-increasing rates of inflation. The poor and vulnerable state of our infrastructure. This is a massive pipeline. They just get hacked by these people who demand $5 million. I swear. I swear. I'll say it again. If I did this in Civ 5, you're paying me your whole GDP worth of money. 
on in gold right off the bat before you're getting any of this back. I'm cutthroat and civ when I don't have all the land I want. <laughs> Maybe I'll play civ when I get off. But okay, look, man, look. We we've discussed we've discussed that they wanted Bitcoin, which in and of itself was an interesting demand. They wanted 75 Bitcoin, which again is roughly equivalent to five million dollars. So just wow. Is this where our dollar has come? Is this where my currency has declined to? 75 invisible coins are worth five million bucks now. That's the power of inflation. That is the power of inflation. And the mass money printing that's been going on with all the stimulus checks uh, is not making the fears of inflation go away. Uh, especially when people in the Federal Reserve say that we're only going to have like 11% inflation. What? No, 11%. That, that's, that's what people are speculating that it's actually going to be at there. The Federal Reserve straight up lying and saying that it's going to be just a little bit more than normal this year. Just a little bit more than normal. When there's a whole quarter of the entire money supply that is in circulation right now was printed last year. Um, I'm diversifying my wealth. I don't, I don't know about you. I'm hedging my bets. I am hedging them pretty hard at this point. Um, so... Be on the lookout, all right. Keep keep yourself safe, all right. Make sure, make sure you have your plans A, B, and C, because uh, hyperinflation appears to be coming because no one has turned the money printer off. So those fears of inflation are definitely rising, and I'll just say that this whole thing with the pipeline getting hacked, K could not have come at a worse time. I mean, we see gas prices going up with all the other pipelines that got shut down and all the federal regulations that have been enacted well enacted more so the more so the how do I put this oh my goodness the ease of restrictions being uneased and the restrictions coming back into play have caused gas to go up you've seen less drilling for shale which is the main source of our windfall of oil and natural gas over the past decade. So we've seen the natural gas and oil industry get hit from this. So gas prices are on the rise. We see the Keystone XL pipeline got shut. Uh, we see Michigan threatening to shut another pipeline uh, that's between them and Toronto. And Colonial gets hacked at just the right moment to screw people over for gas prices. Uh, I'm not quite sure what the national average is now. I think it's up to $3, uh, up to or above $3. And it used to be like around, hovering around 2 something. Uh, like low 2 something, like between two $2, $2, $2 and like two sixteen something somewhere around there. So, something really bad had to have happened for the average to go up by a dollar. Anybody who understands averages knows it's easier to bring them down than it is to bring them back up. And your GPA is probably the best example of that. Uh, as painful as it may or may not be to you. I remember people being very obsessed over their GPAs. I cruised through that. But that's enough about me. Um, yeah, we have the poor and vulnerable state of our infrastructure. This is a massive pipeline getting hacked. And uh, seemingly, our investigative institutions were caught sleeping at the wheel. Um, because n neither the FBI or the CIA or the NSA had an immediate response to offer. Or let alone give themselves. So... There's that as well. And now the question is, who's going to get hacked next? And for how much? Not what are we going to do about this? Which is 
in and of itself dangerous and scary to think about. But that's where we are now. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, there's also debates over the future of U.S. energy with major proponents of green energy saying, look, you can't rely on oil. You need green power. Um, to which I would agree if those same people were down with nuclear power, but they're not. So, eh? Uh, shoot. I'm down with the oil. You what? Well, shale oil, anyway. It's displaced most of the carbon emissions uh, by displacing coal, and it's created a massive industrial boon to the economy. It made us energy independent as well. So I'm all down with shale, and I that is courtesy of Peter Zion. But, um... Yeah, it's definitely raised questions about where we get our energy from. And again, we could go the France model and get 70% of our electricity from nuclear power. Uh, but the people proposing an end to oil don't want that. So that is, for some odd reason, literally not even on the table right now. Uh, so I don't expect nuclear to get expanded. So without nuclear, I expect nothing of meaning to happen with regards to diversification of energy uh, so I guess we're just gonna be right back to where we started really but hey so long as the pipeline doesn't get hacked again I guess that means relatively cheap gas Rel cheap being relative to Europe who has no oil but I guess you gotta you gotta measure yourself to somewhere we're certainly not gonna be measuring it to the Middle East they what do they have? Half a cent for a gallon. Half a cent for a gallon. I actually don't know what they pay for gas. I'd imagine it's around a dollar per gallon, but yeah, it could be higher. I don't know. Maybe, you know. maybe I'll look it up. I might. I say I might. I don't. I won't guarantee anything. But definitely an interesting thing to think about. But there's something more interesting that has caught everyone's attention. And that would be Israel and Palestine. Because, ladies and gentlemen, the conflict gets worse. Again. Now, in the last episode, I mentioned this renewed conflict. Um, I mentioned that it happened and that there were exchanges of rockets. But now... We have more to work with because it was really, really new when I covered it. Similar to how when I covered uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan going to war, it was really, really new. Nothing much had happened, let alone got confirmed. But now we can make a proper follow-up to this. And so make a proper follow-up to this, I shall. Uh, after a rocket barrage hit parts of Tel Aviv... Israel responded by sending missile strikes into the areas that the initial rockets were fired from in the Gaza Strip. Now, for those who don't know, uh, Israel and Palestine sh basically share the same geography, but Palestine is split up into two distinct territories. There's the Gaza Strip, which is along the southwest coastline of Israel. Would I call it Israel? Uh, for for simplicity, I'm going to call this region Israel, encompassing all of Palestinian territory as well. This region that is Israel, all right? And I'll be sure to make the distinction between the actual territory under Israel's jurisdiction and the region. So I'll refer to this region as Israel. So, in the southwestern regions of Israel, you have the Gaza Strip, which is basically coastal access for the Palestinian people along the Levantine coast. Duh. And then you have, to the center east of the region of Israel, you have the West Bank, which sits on, which is a piece of land that sits on the west bank of... Actually, what is that body of water called? I believe it's the Dead Sea, but let me check. 
It is the Dead Sea. Okay, I was correct. The West Bank sits on the west banks of the Dead Sea, which really just means it's um, the western side of the Dead Sea. It doesn't make sense until you know uh, the geography. So anyway, uh, you had Tel Aviv get hit with a barrage of missiles that were fired from the Gaza Strip. So again, this is the southwest of Israel, the region Israel. And Israel responded by sending missile strikes into the areas where the initial rockets were fired from. Uh, the Israel the Israeli strike hit a civilian housing district because that's where the rockets were fired from. Uh, however, this was then used as justification for yet more rocket strikes. And very quickly, this situation escalated to the point where hundreds of rockets were fired by Hamas, a militant organization operating out of Palestinian territories. They fired hundreds of rockets at Israeli cities. Now, many of these rockets have been shot down and intercepted by Israel's Iron Dome air defense system. But like most air defense systems that have throughout the history of warfare, well, yes, like most air defense systems that have existed throughout the history of air warfare, if you throw enough munitions at it, eventually some of those munitions are going to get through. And the Iron Dome is no exception. So eventually, you had rockets that slipped through the dome and hit places in Israel, um, killing people and doing pretty moderate damage. I wouldn't say it's extreme. Uh, Israel's missile strike took down a building. These are more street-level damage, where you, you can see that there is something that hit. You can see that... Something's not right, but it's not quite take a building down level. Um, so, but granted, there's hundreds of these rockets, and had they not been intercepted, we'd probably be singing a very different tune about the damage of these rockets. But that's just a little bit of nuance I'll throw into there. Uh, particularly when we get into uh, the responses by outside observers like myself who talk about the excessive force. So, we'll, we'll get into that, we'll get into that. Um, now, again, many of those rockets got shot down, some of them got through, and given the rather urban nature of the fighting so far, um, this inevitably means that civilian casualties are going to be disproportionately higher than they otherwise would be. And a decent side note here is that it really makes you think about how far we've come um, in terms of warfare, where back in the day, battles were fought on fields in the middle of nowhere, far from the prying eyes of the masses. And you would just get the news either from your army returning home or from the invaders making their way to the city gates, assuming you had city walls to protect you, because not every town and village did. You just got run through and they ate up all your crops and then you you have a famine because you have no food. They took it all. We used to come from very, very harsh times, but compare that to now when battles are fought in the very cities where those prying masses live. So that's that's a pretty big jump. Right? I'll, that's a pretty big jump. And the way I've started to see it in my kind of study, my passive study of military history and the evolution of it, the city has become both a battlefield and a fortress in and of itself. Guerrilla warfare is... Uh, excellent tactic to use inside of a city um, and the city can both be a major defensible position because of all the plenty of places you can hide in it but it's so big that it's inevitably a battlefield so it's a battlefield and a fortress at the same time but it's where people live 
So that's that's the problem. People live there, but that I guess that just makes it easier to recruit if you're a low if you're operating on really really low budget. So, eh, that's the nature of the warfare we're seeing today. At least this specific sect of it. I it's important to note that warfare changes based on the region and the land you're fighting it on. But yeah, we've gone from fighting battles in fields where no one lived to fighting in the places where they live. And people die. So far, about 126 people have died from the fighting. And this number is highly likely to be outdated by the time I sit down to record today's episode. Let alone whenever you guys get around to listening to it. But I appreciate you listening anyway. Now the fighting also seems to be spreading, as rockets have also been fired at Israel from Lebanon, and then a few days after that happened, three rockets were fired from Syria as well. Um, It is currently unknown as to whether or not the Lebanese and Syrian governments uh, were either behind or simply approving of these missile strikes. Uh, that originated from their territories. But given the fact that they're both in a civil war right now, I guess you can partially excuse them. Um, But regardless, it's all been very, very interesting. Uh, Particularly interesting about this situation with regards to those rockets being fired is how conveniently... All these territories firing rockets at Israel happen to, again, conveniently, be within Iran's sphere of influence. Palestine, Lebanon, Syria. All that's missing from these rocket strikes are Iraq, the Houthis, and Iran itself. Very very interesting and again we don't know if the lebanese or syrian governments were actually approved in approval of these strikes uh originating from within their territory i don't imagine i don't imagine we'll get a clear answer on that until after the fact long after the fact but again very interesting thing to see uh, they all just so happen to be in line with Iran. And Iran and Israel hate each other. And Israel's dealing with Palestine, and now everybody's firing rockets at them. Just, just very, just, just minding my own business, you know. It's very interesting, though. It's very, I wouldn't say suspicious, but very interesting to take note of. Now, meanwhile, the Israeli Defense Force isn't exactly taking this sitting down. They've lined up troops along the border with the Gaza Strip. Um, So, again, this is southwest Israel we're talking about here. Both the region and the country, because they're lining troops up on the border. And they're gearing up for what is undoubtedly going to be an invasion that is going to end in occupation. Uh... Because that's, that's where conflicts of these types seem to end uh, right around now. And we can observe the Russians for this. Who, whenever there's a conflict in their neighborhood, they just send in the troops and then sit them down for a while and never leave. Uh, whether or not Israel has the capacity to do so, I would put my money behind they do. Given that they're literally right home. They're right at home. If they can't do that, then that's... Well, that says a lot about the current state of the Israeli military, which isn't exactly a good statement to have said about you. Um, So they have troops lined up along the border. And I'll also say that it's important to note as well that all of this is happening amidst a post-election power struggle within Israel. And I kind of reminded myself of this. Um, and by remind myself, I mean, it popped up in my head and I said, oh, whoa, that's important. I should put it into the episode. Um, yeah, 
Israel still doesn't have a functioning government coalition. They don't have a governing coalition right now. Nobody has the seats in their parliamentary system to form a coalition. Um, So Israel is still within a power struggle right now while all this is happening. So diplomatically speaking, they currently don't have the capacity to actually negotiate a peace, even if they wanted to. And it seems like neither side is very interested in doing that right now. So they're paralyzed politically at the worst possible time. And I I don't, I don't know. Because you're not just going to be able to solve that political problem immediately. You need the coalition. You're going to need to give in on coalition demand. But I mentioned when I brought up the potential coalitions uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's party would need, he was going to need to reach out to some of the left-wing parties, one of them being the Muslim parties. And that means giving concessions. I don't see them giving concessions to the Muslims within Israel at this point in time because they're at war with the Palestinians. There are no concessions to be had. No quarter given and none received at this point in time. So where do they go? I don't know. Further into chaos, it would seem. Um, until Unless something miraculous happens and they're able to form a, co- a governing coalition and maybe get a grip over things right now. Because it seems that this thing is running in autopilot because there is no government to stop it. And even if there was, nobody wants it really to be stopped. Uh, And the death is rapidly fueling mutual antagonisms uh, that were already pretty high as they were prior to this. Um, So there's a a bit of a mess over there. Um, But interestingly as well is that this whole situation has caused a bit of a storm over here in America. Where division over who we should be backing up has resurfaced, as it was kind of there in our political uh, climate, but died down for a while. Now it's back in the public focus as to who we should be backing, and people have reasserted their positions on either side. A primary criticism of the Israeli strikes uh, that they did in Gaza the Gaza Strip, is that they were excessive force. Now, I brought this up earlier that it could be seen that way because you have a missile that takes down a whole building and collapses it with a single shot versus the minor damage of a couple rockets. And again, I'll remind us of the nuance in that most of the rockets were intercepted. If most of those rockets were not intercepted, we'd be singing a very different tune about the damage done by those rockets and whether or not this was a disproportional response. So that's the little bit of nuance I'll inject there because I'm not taking sides on this mess. (laughs) I am not taking sides on this mess. But there's my little bit of nuance again. So that's the primary criticism of the Israeli strikes is that they're excessive force. Biden has come out saying that Israel's strikes in the Gaza Strip were not an overreaction. So there's a bit of a surprise there, uh, given that Democrats in America are mainly pro-Israel. Pro-Israel. No, they're not. They are mainly pro-Palestine. So that's the shocker here. Oh, excuse me. So that's the shocker. Uh, Meanwhile, others put the blame on the Palestinians for initiating the exchange of missiles uh, in the first place. So that's kind of, yeah, maybe. Uh, But then in response, people will take it even further back, saying Israel is an invading force. They're colonialists. They're trying to, they're basically a European colony in the Middle East. The Fifth Crusade. I don't know if people have called it that, but that's kind of the, the thing that comes to my mind, given the, region that we're talking about here 
and the fact that most Israelis are of European descent. But anyway, uh, some are calling for some sort of intervention in the conflict to stop the fighting. The Australian Chancellery has raised the Israeli flag to show solidarity with Israel. People who've been covering the story have been pressured to answer whether or not they were okay with kids being killed in this. It's a whole lot of mess. That's the summary I have for this. A whole lot of mess. It is a big mess. It's a horrendous mess. And it's a mess that I want nothing to do with. I... Although I will say, it is interesting to watch the, uh, quote-unquote, the debates on the issue. And, you know, I, I mean, n yes, it's interesting to watch. Not the people dying, but the debates. Interesting to watch the debates over this issue. Uh, once again, I have noticed in watching these debates uh, that people who think the way I do do not even have a seat at the table but i'm but i'm watching people again in america taking sides on this and i'm sitting here like imagine taking sides on an issue that doesn't actually concern us <laughs> couldn't be me but <laughs> joking aside i mean i mean seriously we are on the wrong side of the ocean for this nonsense. But here we are, taking up hard stances on whether Israel is or isn't an asshole, <laughs> or whether Palestine is or isn't a terrorist state. Like, this has nothing to do with us. This is a mess that we really don't want to be a part of. We do not want this smoke. We, we really don't. And I'm not saying that because they can come get us. That can come get us. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that as in we don't need to entice the people in our government to do any more uh, spreading democracy in this region here. We don't we, we need less wars in the Middle East. We need less American wars in the Middle East. That's what we need. I say isolationism. Other people say that's too far. I would say that they are horrendously wrong and... <laughs> That I am gloriously right and correct in my assumption. Definitely not a biased position, but whatever. No, whatever. <laughs> yeah. It's a bit of a mess. And by a bit, I mean a lot. But, um, yeah, that's, that is a situation we'll have to keep our eyes on. And given the the plethora of press coverage that the situation has gotten, that won't be difficult. It really won't be. And we'll have to see where Israel stands at the end of all this. Because, again, we're starting to see the on the horizon a new balance of power emerging in the Middle East. Arabia is reaching out to Syria. Arabia is reaching out to Iran. So... How are things going to shake out? Because Iran's already on the winning side. Okay, They're already on the winning side. So is this going to be yet another conflict that Iran throws its chips in with the winning side on? Is Israel going to lose and end up with a two-state solution with them in Palestine? Because that is a winning situation for the Palestinians. I'll say that much. So does Iran extend their sphere of influence into the Gaza Strip and the West Bank, like as in solid state actors, the state of Palestine? I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. But it seems to be that that is a possibility and for the time being is going to remain so because this conflict keeps bubbling up and eventually something's got to give. So the question is, is it going to be Palestine or will it be Israel? Because if it's Palestine, Iran is going to walk away the hegemon of the region, surprisingly. I say surprisingly, again, due to how isolated Iran was, uh, just as far back as the U.S. interventions and invasions 
of its neighbors. But now we're seeing Iran walking away. I keep saying walking away, but really they're walking into a preeminent position as a regional hegemon. And that is huge. That's huge. Um, we'll have to see where Israel stands because Arabia, again, is reaching out. And they're getting, they're going to try for at least neutral relations with Syria and Iran. Israel doesn't really have that opportunity right now. They really don't. They're caught in a cold war between them and Iran. And I don't see them turning things around there. Maybe they could surprise me, but they're fighting a war right now and they have no governing coalition. They physically can't do that even if they wanted to so could we be seeing a massive paradigm shift in iran's favor where saudi arabia is neutral to iran and they have this massive sphere of influence i'm talking about the iranians not arabia iran walks away with a massive sphere of influence their main ideological rival uh within the islamic world Arabia is passive towards them and they get effectively a total diplomatic isolation of Israel within the region that would be huge and really a complete reversal of what happened of what was before where Israel was on silent friendly terms with all their neighbors and Iran was isolated and Israel had this massive sphere of influence where they could operate uh, covertly and no one would say anything. We could see the reverse of that. We really could. And that would be dangerous, dangerous for Israel. And that could spawn some extremist factions within Israel taking power in response to such an extreme environment being suddenly thrust upon them. We could be seeing a new Middle East. They are changing rapidly. And I gotta say, it's really caught my attention more than I thought the Middle East ever could given my my stance on interventions there but it's changing and it's changing fast I swear I've heard this before alright it's my closing because we have reached the end of today's episode and why? because that's all I have for today I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. The world is changing. We are watching that firsthand with what's going down in the Middle East. I Again, it's really caught my attention and makes me so excited to do my little podcast for you guys. But like I say all the time, we're going to have fun watching the world change together. Now, I've been your host, Haishan Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus.